So let's begin with the ten top reasons that this story never should have happened. Ten. Peter and Cornelius didn't know each other. They were perfect strangers. Nine. They had no mutual friends to bring them together. Eight. They lived too far apart. Caesarea was 30 miles from Joppa, and that is a long day's journey on foot. Seven, they didn't have a good way to coordinate their meeting time or place, or to let the other know that they were coming. Six, they came from different ethnic backgrounds. Peter was a Hebrew, Cornelius was a Roman. They spoke different native languages and had different cultural traditions. Five, they came from different economic strata. Cornelius was rich. He was part of the upper crust. He had servants. Peter, on the other hand, was a humble fisherman, and he was lodging with someone who skinned dead animals for a living. Four, Cornelius was a military man. Peter was a civilian. Three, Cornelius made his living enforcing the military occupation of Peter's homeland. And Peter was none too fond of the occupiers. Two, they came from different faith backgrounds. Peter was a Jew. Cornelius was a Gentile. Number one, Peter's faith prohibited him from having contact with Gentiles. These are some of the reasons that this story should never have happened. But somehow, somehow it did. In this story, we find two men drawn together, not by some chance meeting or some mutual friend, not by common geography or common ethnicity or a common experience. They were drawn together by the grace of God and the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because if God's mission was going to go forward in the world, these particular men needed to be converted. Their hearts and minds needed to be transformed. And in order for that to happen, they needed to be in relationship with each other. This message comes to Cornelius in Caesarea, a city of lavish palaces, of large amphitheaters, of a huge temple dedicated to Caesar. It was the headquarters for Roman governors and kings. Here, Cornelius is a Roman military officer responsible for a hundred men charged with keeping the peace in this Roman-occupied zone. But we also learn that although he is a Gentile, although he is a Roman and a leader in the occupation force, he is a devout, God-fearing man who gives generously to those in need and who is known for his faithful prayer life. And yet... And yet there is something missing. Although Cornelius prays and seeks and searches, 
He does not yet know Jesus, although Jesus knows him. And then there's Peter. Well, Peter already knows Jesus. In fact, he was a personal friend and disciple of Jesus back before Jesus was killed and then brought back to life again. Peter has been through so much with Jesus. Certainly by now he knows all there is to know about loving him and following him and experiencing new life through him. Or does he? Might there be ways that this seasoned disciple is still called to stretch and to grow? Now clearly, the Holy Spirit who may not be mentioned too much in the story, but clearly the Holy Spirit is at work in the story to bring what is needed for the conversion of these men's hearts, souls, and minds. In both cases, what comes, what's needed, comes in the form of a vision. And for, for Cornelius, this vision is very clear. No question about it. He distinctly sees an angel of God. He hears this angel's blessing and affirmation, and he clearly understands the instructions to send for a man by the name of Peter. This vision is clear, and Cornelius, he responds decisively by sending two of his servants and one of his soldiers immediately to find and to bring back Peter. Peter's vision, on the other hand, is a little bit more confusing. What he sees is very clear, but what it means is not. As he is hungry, praying on a rooftop, he sees a sheet being lifted down, let down from heaven, a sheet full of animals, most of which, from a Jewish perspective, were terribly, terribly unclean. And then came a voice with a very disturbing message. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Peter's response is visceral. It is, no way. Now, his revulsion against things unclean comes to him honestly through good training at home through the influence of the Jewish society around him, and through the reading and interpretation of Hebrew scripture in the synagogue. Separating oneself from things unclean was a mark of faithfulness to God, a refusal to be compromised by the dominant pagan culture. So, understandably, this vision must have been very, very confusing for Peter. It seemed to be calling him to disobey God in order to obey God. Now, how do you make sense of that? Well, Peter couldn't. The vision comes to him three times, and each time he resists it. Each time he says, no way, because it is so against everything that he has been taught. And each time the voice responds, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Peter doesn't get it. But the experience does get him thinking. He starts to wonder about some things 
So by the time that Cornelius's envoy arrives, Peter is a bit more open to the Spirit's prompting. The Spirit says, Peter, there are three men knocking at the door looking for you. Get down there and go with them. Don't ask questions. I sent them to get you. Well, at this point, Peter does what he is told. He goes down to greet these strangers, and he agrees to go with them. But first, first, he offers them hospitality. He invites these unclean Gentile men, these Roman military men, to come in and to be his guests. Now that in itself would be an incredible ending to this story. But the story isn't over. Not yet. Peter gathers together some fellow believers, and they go with these men to Caesarea, to the home of Cornelius. And guess what? Cornelius is so sure, he's so sure that Peter is going to show up, that he is there, ready and waiting with all of his relatives and his friends. He has faith that Peter will arrive, although Peter has every reason not to. In fact, when Peter arrives, he acknowledges to Cornelius that this very act of showing up was a very difficult step for him to take. He reminds Cornelius that it's against the law of his people for a Jew to associate or to even visit a Gentile. Separation from Gentiles was a mark of faithfulness. But now God seemed to be muddying the waters, telling him in a vision that he should not call anyone impure or unclean. And now God has guided him here to this place, and Peter wants to know why. So he invites Cornelius to tell his story. Cornelius does. And as he does, Peter finally begins to put it all together. And guess what? He experiences a conversion. A light goes on for him. And he says for all to hear, oh, I now realize how true it is that that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. And then he shares the story of Jesus with Cornelius and all those who are gathered with him. This is a story that they have been waiting to hear. And as Peter shares this story, Cornelius and his friends begin to put it all together. And as they do, something truly amazing happens. The Holy Spirit falls upon them, and they begin to speak in tongues, praising God. And it's Pentecost all over again, this time with Gentiles. Gentiles who are welcomed into God's family. Now, Peter and his Jewish friends are astonished. I mean, they cannot believe what they are seeing. But finally, Peter concludes, well, we might as well baptize these folks with water since they've already been baptized with the Spirit. How can anyone object? They've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. 
And so, these Gentile believers are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they are welcomed into the family of faith. It's pretty obvious that we have just heard a communion story, a conversion story. Cornelius hears the story of Jesus and is converted to faith in Christ. And Peter is converted too, from a faith defined by boundaries to a faith marked by welcome. He begins to grasp the magnitude of God's love. Both conversions were necessary for God's, for God's work to move forward in this world. Both conversions happened also in the context of hospitality. First, there's hospitality toward God. Cornelius welcomes God's presence in his life, even when he doesn't know about Jesus. And we see God welcoming Cornelius, seeking him out and directing him to Peter. Peter, too, welcomes God's presence in his life, although he probably doesn't know what he's getting into when he goes up onto that rooftop to play, to pray. But by then, it's too late. He opens the door, and in walks Jesus, offering to satisfy his hunger in a way that Peter would never, could never have imagined. These experiences of hospitality then set in motion other acts of hospitality. As Peter and Cornelius offer hospitality to each other, and as they graciously receive the gift of hospitality from each other. And then the Holy Spirit crashes the party with a grand welcome of its own. This is not polite Sunday morning hospitality. This is life-changing hospitality. Hospitality that gives birth to new relationships and to new ways of seeing. Hospitality that opens the door for God's spirit to come in and to change people from the inside out. This is hospitality that leads to conversion. Now we may or may not welcome this thought. When we offer hospitality, Speaking for myself, we generally want it to be safe. And safe usually means interacting with people like us, with people we know and trust, who, with people who don't stretch us too far. Welcoming the other who is very different from us, who may not share our values or our faith traditions, someone who may see our world in a very different way, someone who may even see us as the enemy. Well, welcoming this other can feel very counterintuitive and actually, actually quite scary. At the same time, I also know that some of the most significant points in my own conversion experience over the past 30 years have taken place around the table with some people that I might never have chosen to be together with, with military veterans who have helped me see 
the human face of war. With persons living in poverty who have helped me see that not everyone is born with equal opportunity. With family members of gay and lesbian folk who have helped me to further understand the pain, the real pain of exclusion. With persons of other racial or ethnic groups who have helped me at least begin to understand my own white privilege. Conversion is not an easy process. We are often stretched beyond the place where we feel comfortable. We're sometimes invited to shed things that we hold precious to make room for new growth. We're challenged to see ourselves and others in new ways. Yet, there is comfort here, too, in knowing that conversion is a spirit-guided process. Just as the Holy Spirit was working in the lives of Peter and Cornelius, the Holy Spirit is here working in our lives as well to help us become the people that God wants us to be. And as in the case of Peter and Cornelius, God often... God often brings us face-to-face -face with the people that we need to be in relationship with in order to learn the things that we need to learn so that God's mission might go forward in this world. In the days and weeks ahead, as we continue to ponder what it means to be hospitable people, I pray that we will be open to the people that God sends us. I pray that in the process, we might be open to conversion. And I pray most of all that we will be open to the vision of God's vast expanse of love for all people everywhere. Amen.